morning, everybody. Good to see you all here this morning, especially if you're a visitor. If you're here for the first time, it's great to have you with us. Did you notice our fantastic new car park this morning in use for the first time? Out the front, it's all very posh, and it's great, isn't it? Well, you might have, if, if you're new, it might be new to you, but we, uh, through the last year, we've been building out the front and creating a new car park, and that's in use from today onwards. So during the week, the barriers that come up, they'll stay up so that it's kind of shut off during the week for Sunday mornings, and special events will open it up. The new car park and area only actually has seven regular bays and two disabled bays, so it's not a massive uh, provision. But what we're going to do as a consequence of that is just limit it to the people who are actually sort of running the service each week. So if you're not involved in the setup or in the band or in uh, the Sunday school or whatever, if you can not car, if you can not park in there, just park in the normal car park or over in the school car park. But if you are on the the kind of uh, service team setup, then when you get here, just uh, park in there. It's also for use for dropping off, as, as well as the two disabled bays. If you want to drop somebody off who, for mobility reasons, just needs to be dropped off right by the door, then we'll use it for that as well. So please feel free to drive through, to come in that way and go out that way. Don't try and come in that way. It will just have chaos and carnage. Okay. What we're trying to do is just limit the amount of cars that are driving through to the bare minimum because it's also the main pedestrian access. So hopefully that's clear and we won't have any, uh, anybody knocked over or any cars banged into anything like that. Any questions, let me know. I wonder what you think of when you hear the word church. We've talked about our church building, the car park, our church car park. But what do you think about when you hear the word church? What's your kind of go-to image in your head? Maybe you think of the kind of beautiful old building in the countryside, that sort of idyllic picture with the, the fire, kind of midsummer murder, sort of uh, that, that kind of thing. Uh, maybe you think of a big, amazing cathedral, something like Durham. Um, an amazing picture like Durham. Oh, it's coming, it's coming, hopefully. An amazing picture. There it is, amazing picture like Durham. Uh, or maybe a similarly beautiful architectural masterpiece like Regent Chapel. <laughs> not, not one of the highlights of British architecture, of church architecture, it has to be said. It does show you, though, how much better it looks out the front, doesn't it? Since that was taken before we had the work done. So, so that's good. Well, the English word church doesn't actually have anything to do with a building. The English word church is translated from the Greek, the Greek word ecclesia. Now on your seats there's an outline, all the information that we're looking through today will be up on the screen on the outline as well, so if it's, it's there if you want to make use of that or take it home. But the, the English word church is translated from a Greek word which is ecclesia and it literally means assembly or gathering of people and in the Bible it's used to refer to God's gathered people. Okay, That's what church means, God's gathered people. It's what uh, we used to refer to all those who throughout history right across the world have trusted in Jesus. God's gathered people right across the world, the universal church. But the Bible also refers to local churches, churches like this one. And a local church is again, same word ecclesia, a local gathering of God's people, God's gathered people who people who've surrendered their lives to Jesus in a locality, in a location, and who gather with other like-minded people God's gathered people in a local place. And so this is a local church, Regent Christian Fellowship. That's the name of our church. We are this morning here. We are God's gathered people gathered together. We meet in Regent Chapel. That's the building. But this isn't the church. This is just a building for convenience. The church is us. It's the people. God's gathered people today. And the Bible says that Christ loved the church and gave himself 
for her to make her holy. So the, ch- so the church worldwide, all those who throughout history have trusted in Jesus and local churches are sacred and holy. Jesus gave up his life for the church to make the church holy. It's God's gathered people. It's all those who've trusted in Jesus. And every local church, therefore, is sacred and is holy. Not the building. The building is irrelevant. The people who, wherever they gather, that gathering is a sacred and a holy gathering. All our gatherings, when they're in the name of Jesus, when they're at kind of official gatherings of the church, not just friends meeting together who are Christians, but when they meet in the name of Jesus, are sacred and holy gatherings. When a local church gathers together in the name of Jesus, God is uniquely and specially present in a way that he isn't at any other time or in any other place. Okay, so when God's people gather in the name of Jesus, we've got something going on that is sacred, that is holy, that is unique, because Jesus is right there in a way that he isn't at any other time or in any other place. Jesus said this in the Bible, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them, among them. So the church is sacred and it's holy and it's special and it's unique because Jesus is present. Nowhere else on earth is Jesus present in the way that he is when God's people gather together in Jesus' name. So Jesus is present all over the world this morning in local gatherings just like this. This isn't, it's not a social club, it's not a, a group of friends, it's not a, a book club or some kind of sports club. This isn't just something we kind of do because we've got nothing else to do on a Sunday morning. This, what we're doing right now, what you are experiencing right now, is a sacred and a holy gathering. It's a sacred and a holy event because Jesus is here, right here among us by the power of his Holy Spirit. This is sacred. This is holy. Not the building. This, this gathering of God's people. The Lord Jesus Christ is right here among us this morning in and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that brilliant? Isn't that amazing? Now, you might not feel that. You might just feel, well, I'm, you know, I just kind of come to something this morning and I'm just with some friends and we're, we're singing some songs about God and so on. But it's more than that. This is a sacred and a holy moment, a holy and a sacred thing, because Jesus is here, because we are his people gathering together in the name of Jesus. God's gathered people. And the Holy Spirit is here, and Jesus is here through the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't see him, but we experience him in our lives as we gather, as we worship, as we listen to the Bible read, as we listen to the teaching, as we engage with one another. This is sacred. This is holy. It's special. I wonder if when you were getting ready this morning, screaming at your kids or uh, you know, trying to find that lost shoe that you, of, of your pair of shoes or whatever, or when the car just wasn't sort of behaving properly, was that what you were thinking of this morning? I am going to something that is sacred and holy and special and unique. Did you think of yourself coming to be part of a holy and a sacred gathering of God's people where you would meet and encounter Jesus? Was that what was going on in your head? Maybe it was. Maybe if you were screaming at the kids, it, maybe it wasn't. Maybe. This is a sacred moment, a sacred and a holy gathering. 
And it's not just Sunday mornings. Whenever and wherever God's people meet together in the name of Jesus, in other words, in an official church gathering, then it's a sacred and a holy gathering, wherever it is, whenever it is, not just Sunday mornings. So that includes our prayer meetings on a Sunday evening or our communion service tonight or our home groups, which are on this week. Sacred and holy gatherings of God's people who are meeting in the name of Jesus, gathered in his name. And that's one of the reasons why so much of the New Testament of the Bible is given over to giving us instructions as to how a local church should function and, and exist because the local church is so important. The local church matters and it matters so much to Jesus. He laid down his life for the church, the Bible says. And we've seen that over the last few weeks as we've been working our way through Paul's letter to Titus in the New Testament, a letter that he wrote to Titus who was overseeing the churches in Crete that Paul had started along with his missionary team as he'd preached and seen many people trusting in Jesus. Those people then gathered together in the name of Jesus. God's people gathered together to form those local churches, those local assembly gatherings. And so much of his letter to Titus is about valuing and protecting those churches in Crete. Because as we've seen, when uh, those churches were gathering, each of those churches were sacred and holy. They were really special. They were really important. So Paul was really passionate and, and concerned about them. So that's why, uh, one of the reasons why he wrote this letter to Titus. Last week, Stuart looked at most of uh, the first part of Titus chapter 3, which focuses on all that God has done in his amazing grace in saving us and uh, in transforming us through the work of Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And the last verse that Stuart looked at last week says this, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Paul wants those that have trusted in God, in other words, the members of local churches like us, to devote themselves to doing what is good. Because doing what is good, according to Paul, is excellent and profitable for everyone. In other words, these verses are encouraging us to behave in ways that are excellent and profitable for the rest of our church family. Our goal should to be to want to be a blessing to the rest of our church family when we come together. God wants us to deeply, deeply value this, our church, because it's made up of those who Jesus laid his life down for. And it's made up of those who now belong to God and are his possession. This is sacred, it's holy, it's serious, it matters. And he wants us to behave in ways that bless those who are part of this sacred and holy gathering. When we think about our church and when we're getting ready to come to church, whether it's Sunday morning or a home group during the week, what is it that goes through our minds, I wonder? Do we treat it, do we think of it as something that's sacred and holy and special and unique? The, the most unique gathering of people anywhere on planet Earth. And do we think of ways in which we can behave when we're with our church family that, as Paul says in verse 8, will be excellent and profitable for everyone who's part of that church family? It, it would be great, wouldn't it, if that was our heart's desire, our, our kind of focus that when we get together, I, I'm, I'm coming together for lots of reasons, to worship God, to, to, to hear the word of God and all that kind of stuff, but also to look for ways in which I can be a blessing to those I'm meeting with be great if everybody did that sadly the reality is that that's not the case and in lots of churches that isn't the case and, and, and that's what Paul goes on to address in the next few verses 
And that's what we're looking at today. We're looking at Titus 3, verses 9 to 11. And this is what Paul says in these few verses that we're going to look at. But I'm actually going to just go back and read the passage that Stuart read last week. That just gives us a little bit of a context to what we're reading. So if you've got a Bible handy and you want to turn, you can do that. You can, or you can just listen uh, as I read the words, whatever you're comfortable doing. So we're going to look at Titus chapter 3. We're going to read again the passage that Stuart uh, looked at us for uh, last week. And then we're going to get into, in verse 9, the bit that we're looking at today. So Paul says this in verse 3. He said, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But, this is what we're looking at this morning, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, talking about the Jewish law, because these are unprofitable and useless Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Verse 8 encourages us to devote ourselves to doing what is good so that our behavior is excellent and profitable for everybody else in our church family. But it's possible for us to not behave in that way. It's possible for people to behave in ways that are not excellent, that are not profitable for everyone else in their church family. And Paul focuses on one example of that in verse 9, which was clearly a real problem there in those churches in Crete in the first century where, uh, Timoth- uh, where Titus was serving and where Paul was writing to. This is what Paul says, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and they're useless. Now, it seems that some people there in the churches in Crete were getting unhelpfully obsessed about things that were mostly linked to the Jewish law of the Old Testament. They were obsessing about things that were largely irrelevant because the New Testament makes it clear that those who have trusted in Jesus are free from the Old Testament law. It doesn't mean that it's irrelevant to us, but we're not bound by the Old Testament law. It is not our major focus, and it shouldn't be. And what was happening was some of these folks were not just kind of spending too much time looking at that. They were getting obsessed about little things and details and, and kind of little verses in the Bible and all the rest of it. Some of them were so obsessed with, Jew, with their Jewish uh, ancestry that they were kind of, you know, people getting obsessed today. I'm one of them who does their family tree and you have all your kind of ancestors. They were getting obsessed with this because they thought it made them superior to other people if they could sort of maybe trace their Jewish ancestry. And Paul was saying, look, all of that is irrelevant. None of that actually matters. It's all about having a relationship with God through Jesus. It wasn't that it was necessarily wrong to think about those things, but it was pretty irrelevant, really, for those who had trusted in Jesus. And and what was happening was these folks were diverting everybody else's attention from what really mattered, which was about loving God, telling people the good news about Jesus, and loving and serving others. That's what they should have been focusing on. And instead... These folks were creating arguments and fallouts and disunity and division in the churches by obsessing on stuff that really was largely irrelevant. 
Paul tackles a similar problem that wasn't just happening in Crete. He tackles a similar problem when he writes to Timothy as he was leading the churches in Ephesus, which is in what is now modern-day Turkey. This is what he writes to Timothy. He says, Command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart, and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. Same problem. People focusing on things that just created controversy and arguments and disunity rather than focusing on what really mattered, which was about advancing God's work, advancing the the good news about Jesus and spreading it around the world. And whilst we might not have the specific kind of same issues that might kind of uh, get us uh, distracted today, we're not probably going to be unhelpfully obsessed by Jewish genealogies and the Jewish law, for instance. But we can still fall into the same trap. We can still find ourselves, if we're not careful, doing the same kind of things that were happening and people were doing in those churches in Ephesus and in Crete in the first century. We can still focus and obsess about things that promote what Paul calls foolish controversies and things that are effectively meaningless talk, as he puts it there in First Timothy. One example of this is the second coming of Jesus. Now, the second coming of Jesus is incredibly important. It is an, a, just an amazingly important doctrine that we need to remind ourselves of on a daily basis. Jesus says he's coming back, and we should be living every day with that expectation that Jesus will return. He's going to come back. He said he will, and we should live with that expectation. But if we're not careful, what we can find ourselves doing is obsessing about some of the fine detail in some of the books that talk about what happens when Jesus comes back and and before and after that great event. Some of those details are not clear and maybe arguably are not meant to be. They're pictorial language and so on. But if we're not careful, we can kind of obsess on a verse or or a particular bit of that and end up arguing and creating division and disunity, and we're missing the point. The point is that Jesus is coming back and we need to be ready to see him and make sure we're living in a way that looks as if Jesus is coming back. We're ready to meet him. We're living that way. We're focusing on reaching lost people with the good news about Jesus. If we're not careful, we can end up arguing with each other about something that isn't really kind of relevant to our lives. We can end up creating a foolish controversy, as Paul says, or a controversial speculation instead of focusing on that important central point which is that Jesus is coming back, and that could be at any moment. So we need to live in a way that reflects that. And some people can end up kind of getting caught up with doing this, and not just about this, but perhaps about lots of different issues in the Bible that are not particularly clear, perhaps, in the way that they're written. And we end up, well, we can, if we're not careful, we can end up falling out, arguing, and, and kind of focusing on things that just creates controversy for the sake of controversy, rather than really focusing on what's important. Instead of behaving in in a way, as Paul says, that is excellent and profitable for everyone. As Paul says in Titus 3.8, we can end up behaving in a way that's unprofitable. It's a waste of our time, basically, and and it's useless, and it damages church unity. And it's not just limited to arguments about aspects of the Bible. We, We can find ourselves doing this about stuff that's outside of the Bible as well, all sorts of things in life. Some people just love an argument. Some people find themselves you know, just kind of creating arguments for an argument's sake. Some people walk into a room and just can't help but start an argument and be controversial. Some people behave in ways that creates division. 
and some people even enjoy doing that, they deliberately start conversations that they know will pit one person against another person. It's going to cause an argument. They cause sort of controversy and stir up arguments about the things that in the end don't really matter. But those arguments, if we're not careful, can cause disunity and fallout and relationship breakdown. And what these verses are encouraging us to do is to behave in ways that, as Paul says in verse 8, are excellent and profitable for everyone. And to avoid behaving in ways that are unprofitable and useless. Now, Paul isn't saying that we shouldn't argue or we shouldn't contend uh, for things that are, that are important. We should, absolutely. But it's this whole idea of just having an argument for an argument's sake or, or focusing so on something that is unprofitable ultimately and isn't going to change anything. Behavior that's divisive and can damage this wonderful church family, this sacred and holy thing that God has given us. Our church is God's gathered people. It's a sacred, holy thing. And when we gather together in the name of Jesus, what is taking place is unique and special. And even when we're not formally gathered like this, we're still members, if we're members of this church or any other church, we're still members of that sacred, holy family of God. So our behavior towards each other needs to reflect that or, or, or should reflect that. So it's good to ask ourselves, isn't it, if our attitude and our behavior in general towards individual members of our church family, and especially when we gather together to attend church gatherings, is, it, is our behavior that which is excellent and profitable for everyone? Or is it unprofitable? Is it useless? How is my behavior kind of weighted towards in those things? Or to put it another way, when I attend church, am I seeking to bring love and unity? Or do I cause arguments and bring division? It's good to examine our own behavior. Do I find myself causing arguments and bringing division? Or am I seeking when I come together with other believers this morning, am I looking to bring love and unity? person is continuously being divisive, especially if they're deliberately trying to cause division and pit people against each other, then the church elders, according to Paul here, need to take action. Paul says this in verse 10, speaking about people who are behaving like this, he says, warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. And he says something similar in Romans 16, verse 17, to the church in Rome, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching of your, you have learned. Keep away from them. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? Keep away from them, have nothing to do with them. Doesn't seem very kind of Christian, does it? Doesn't seem very kind of nice and doesn't seem the sort of words that Jesus would use. Have nothing to do with such people. Have nothing to do with them. Keep away from them. Aren't we supposed to love everybody? Aren't we supposed to be gracious and, and generous and forgiving and patient? Well, that's true, but it's only half the picture. It's not the whole picture. We should absolutely be loving and gracious and gentle and patient and bearing with one another. A absolutely. But that's only half the picture. We also need to protect our church because our church and every church is a sacred and a holy thing. If a person's behaving badly and being divisive in whatever way that happens to look, then the elders need to challenge that person's behavior, Paul says here. And if, they, if that person doesn't change their behavior as a result of being challenged, then they should challenge the person again. 
And if that person continues to behave badly and, and ignore the rebuke and that kind of hopefully gentle kind of calling back to, to a good way of living, then that person may have to be excluded from the life of the church and put out of church membership. It's what we call sometimes church discipline. It's not very popular. Uh, it's not something that anybody enjoys. I don't enjoy speaking on this, and I can guarantee that as elders, we don't enjoy having to do it or even think about having to do it. But it really is essential. And it really is essential because the local church is God's gathered people. This matters. This is sacred and holy. And we need to treat this seriously and with reverence. And when the elders have to sometimes take discipline action towards somebody who is behaving like this, then it's really important that the rest of the church family supports them and doesn't undermine what they're doing. Now, there are three aims of church discipline. There are three aims of doing this or taking this kind of action, which might seem really, well, this is kind of serious stuff, but here it is for us. And, and there, are th there are three reasons. Firstly, it's always about trying to get that person to repent, to turn around, to no longer behave like that, and to restore them back into relationship with everybody else. It's not about, it's never about punishing somebody. This is always about restoration and repentance. It's never about punishing people. The aim is to get the person who's behaving badly to stop behaving badly, to repent and to be restored first and foremost to God, but then also to be restored to the, the people perhaps that they have fallen out with or behaved badly towards. The most loving thing to do when someone is sinning is to challenge their behavior. It's not to continue allowing them to sin. And the hope and prayer is that by excluding a person from church life, it causes them to come to their senses and stop sinning in whatever way that they're sinning and, and be restored to God and be restored to everybody else in their church family. Secondly, church discipline is about the unity and the purity of the local church because it's, uh, as a church, it's, it's God's gathered people. And so their unity and their purity really matters. This, this, this matters. It's about unity and it's about purity. And thirdly, it's all about God's glory and honor. It's about taking steps to ensure that a local church and its members function and behave in a way that brings God glory rather than dishonors him and dishonors his name in the name of Jesus. Now, church discipline is always a last resort. It's not the first thing that a church should do or church elders should do. It's always a last resort. It's what we do and we've tried everything else and we've had all those private conversations with people and kind of gently trying to urge them to behave differently. When we've tried everything else, it's the very last resort, and it should always be the last resort. But we do have to do it. And, and Jesus teaches us to do this in gradual stages. Uh, Jesus, who was, is often presented as just only ever saying nice things to people, actually said some really harsh things to people, some really difficult things, because Jesus was concerned about purity and holiness, and his people gathered together, and the holiness of their gatherings and so Jesus says this in Matthew 18 that we we start small we have one conversation to another one-on-one -on -one, and if that person refuses to take any notice and and stop behaving the way they do then you take another person or two or three and uh, as witnesses and if they still refuse to respond to what's going on then we take it up to the next level as a last resort and we take it to the whole church Jesus talked about taking other people to witness what's said and if that person still ignores us then we take it to the whole church. The aim is always repentance and restoration. It's never about punishment or shaming people. 
And so if the problem can be solved privately, that's fantastic. No one else needs to know about it. It's a problem that's resolved and dealt with. But sadly, sometimes that isn't the case, and sometimes it has to become a more serious step. The reason that Paul gives in Titus 3 for church discipline, somebody being removed from church membership and excluded from the life of the church, in this case in Titus 3, is about people being uh, divisive and causing disunity. But there are other reasons and other examples in the rest of the New Testament, which I think it'd be really important just to briefly look at, because this is a really important subject. We get some examples from Paul when he writes uh, this in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, but now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, in other words, a follower of Jesus, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Again, that's really strong, isn't it? Do not even eat with such people. Feels kind of awkward, doesn't it? But what Paul is saying is that if somebody is claiming to be a Christian brother or sister, in other words, a believer in Jesus and part of God's gathered people, because we're brothers and sisters spiritually with God as our Father, but is then actively behaving in one of these ways that he's just listed, then they need to be excluded from church membership. And the other church members should have nothing to do with those with that individual until they repent and change their behavior. Paul says, do not even eat with such people. And, and the reason he talks about eating with people is because in the Bible, sharing food with people, uh, which is still true today, is one of the kind of closest, most intimate things that we do with people, isn't it? You have people over, you share a table together, you share food. And Paul says, don't do that. Exclude, you know, break these relationships because people need to realize that their behavior is wrong and they can't live like this. And it might seem really harsh, it might seem unloving, it might seem, you might call it unchristian, but it's actually the very opposite. When someone who claims to be a believer in Jesus is behaving like this, or, or in other ways that we see in the Bible that are wrong, then the most loving thing we can do is not to ignore their behavior. That's the, the easy option, but it's not the most loving thing. The most loving thing you can do is actually to expose them to church discipline. Dietrich Bonhoeffer German church leader of the 1930s said this, nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. It's because the church is God's gathered people and is holy and is sacred that we need to treat it with reverence and sometimes as a very last resort carry out church discipline. Our attitude towards our church reflects on our attitude, our attitude towards Jesus. Because the church belongs to God. It belongs to Jesus. It's his possession. Jesus died for the church. It's his gathered people. It's special. It's unique. And so our reflection or, or our attitude towards the church should and does reflect on our attitude towards God. So with that in mind, in what circumstances then should we carry out church discipline? Well, there, there are basically five reasons that we find in the New Testament for church discipline. And I've put the Bible references on your outline for all the instances and, uh, in the New Testament where church discipline is mentioned. The first is when one church member is sinning against another church member, against another believer. And, and then the second is where a person is damaging the unity of the church to which they belong. And that's the kind of thing that Paul is focused on here in our passage that we've been looking at today. Disciplining someone who's causing division by their behavior and who then refuses to change their behavior when they're challenged. The third is when a church member is damaging the reputation of their church and is dishonoring Jesus through a sinful lifestyle. 
The verses that we looked at in 1 Corinthians 5 has a variety of examples of that kind of situation. Paul mentions sexual immorality, which in the Bible is any sexual activity outside of the marriage of one man and one woman. Sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, slander, being a drunkard or being a swindler. In other words, being dishonest in business and financial matters. Now, that's not an exhaustive list, but it gives us an idea of some of the kind of ways in which uh, people's behavior can damage the reputation of a local church and, more importantly, dishonors Jesus. Those behaviors are not compatible with being a follower of Jesus. They're meant to be things we've repented of and have stopped doing. And this isn't talking about being tempted to do these things or occasional lapses into these kind of sins or other sins. This is talking about someone who, with an ongoing lifestyle, refuses to stop behaving like this. This is how they live. This is just their identity. Fourth reason is when a church member is leading others into sin by their behavior. And the Bible talks about this kind of thing being a bit like yeast that spreads through a whole batch of dough. If it's not stopped, then it spreads a bit kind of like a cancer and, and, and instead of just one person sinning the whole church is affected and other people are then led into sin by someone else's bad behavior and bad example and the last resort is when a church member is opposing or is attacking biblical teaching and one of the examples of this we we find in john's second letter in the new testament it's and it's when a person is denying uh, or attacking the fact that jesus was fully human but it could be all sorts of things Principally, it's going to be when somebody is opposing or attacking what the Bible teaches about who Jesus is and about how we get right with God. They're the kind of two essentials, who the person of Jesus is and how we get right with God and and issues linked to those two things. Because those two issues are fundamental and a key to everything else that we believe. And so if they're being attacked or opposed, then the whole message of the Bible is being attacked and opposed. And so sometimes, again, as a last resort, church elders and the whole church may need to take action in that kind of situation church discipline in these five areas will always and should always be a very last resort and it's always with the aim of repentance it's always with the aim of restoration it's never about punishing people but it will sometimes sadly be necessary so we need to be aware of that we need to be aware that that sometimes does happen and will have to happen the local church is god's gathered people This church is God's gathered people. And when we gather together, it is a holy and a sacred event because Jesus is right here amongst us by the power of his Holy Spirit. This is unique and special. This right now, this moment is a sacred, holy moment, a sacred, holy place, not the building, but us as we gather together as God's people. Being a member of a church is such a privilege And it comes with huge responsibilities, as we've seen this morning. The way that we become part of the worldwide church is by putting our faith and trust in who Jesus is and surrendering our lives to him and and believing in what he's done for us there on the cross by dying and taking the punishment for our sins and rising again from the dead. It's about putting our faith and trust in Jesus. And then as we do that, we become part of his worldwide church. But the way we become part of a local church is by choosing to become a member and then publicly committing to that church. There's a difference between attending, coming along perhaps on a Sunday morning, there's a difference between that and actually being a member of a local church where we say, I am committing to this, to you, and I am part of this now and I'm committing to, I'm choosing to do this, identify with this church. And it may be that you've been attending this church and 
for whatever reason you've chosen, you haven't yet chosen to become a member of this church, and, that, and that's fine. But what I want to encourage you this morning is if you would like to know more about that or you'd like to become a member of this church, then please do come and speak to Keith or Paul or myself. We'd love to chat with you and explore that further. Every Christian should be a member of a local church. The idea of a Christian not being committed to and, and, and part of a, a local church, not just attending, but actually a part of a local church, that's not in the New Testament of the Bible. Every believer ought to be part of a local church. And when we're members of a church like this one, we have the duty and huge responsibility to treasure and to protect our church because we're God's gathered people, sacred and holy. So when we think about our church, when we interact with our church family, when we gather together in the name of Jesus, let's make sure, let's do all we can to avoid behaving in ways that, as Paul puts it, are unprofitable and useless, and instead strive to behave in ways that are excellent and profitable for everyone. Let's just bow our heads and, and let's just reflect on what we've said this morning and just take a few moments to just to, yeah, to, 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 to soak in the moment. God is here. The Holy Spirit is here. The Lord Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is here. He's gathered. He's here as we gather in his name this morning. Let's honor that. Let's recognize that. And if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about anything, then now's like an opportunity just to do business with God. That means turning away from your sin or repenting of something or committing yourself to getting restored to a relationship with another Christian in this room or, or, or with God himself, then why not do that this morning? Maybe God's calling you to be a member of, a, of this church or another church. Or just to change perhaps our attitude of how we view church. Father, we thank you for the church. We thank you that we are your gathered people. We thank you this morning and, and throughout this day there will be millions, hundreds of millions of people across this planet who are part of your worldwide gathered people who are gathering in, in little churches like this, some bigger, some smaller, throughout this day in the name of Jesus where you are uniquely and specially present. Thank you for this church, Lord. We're just a tiny, tiny little speck as part of that much wider church, but we thank you for this church. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you loved the church and gave yourself for her, for us. Help us to treasure and value and protect our church. Help us to love the church in the way that you love the church. Help us to love one another. Help us to be Behave in ways that are profitable and useful and a blessing and a benefit to each one. Protect our church, we pray. Bless us, we pray. We praise you, we worship you this morning. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.